everybody, welcome to episode 13 of the Hey Cohen Show. I was actually going to do an Einstein Drive here from Sexy Nakhon. So glad Zen. you didn't. You're glad? Oh, did I just spoil it for you by actually going there? Yeah. Didn't mean to. This is episode 13 of the Hey Cohen Show. First question on Instagram. Instagram. I said last time that Instagram and I were going to get a little bit more intimate. And? But little did we know that I was actually going to share a nude on Instagram. So we, I actually fulfilled the prophecy. You did. I'll be coming more intimate with Instagram. If you haven't seen it, go and check it out. It's a little bit naughty. <laughs> Kia XXX says, Hey Corwin, what's your advice on raising successful, resilient children? That's a really good question. Look, I would start by saying, um, you know, educate yourself on what kids need in order to really thrive. And one of the things that you know we've learned that you know that kids, well, I've learned that kids really need is actually reading. Uh, a number of different books, but there's one in particular that I recommend by Vanessa, Dr. Vanessa Lapointe, uh, who's from Vancouver in Canada. She wrote an incredible book called Discipline Without Damage. And one of the things that you know, we have now learnt through the, the study of children and environments is the, you know, is the fundamental responsibility that we have as parents on creating an environment that produces healthy kids. Because the reality is not only, not only does the environment that a child grows up in have an effect on you know, their, their physical growth, but it also has an incredible impact on their mental growth. Um, you know, when we look at you know con conditions like ADHD, when we look at conditions like you know certain mental illnesses and addiction. You know, a lot of these conditions, in many cases, actually develop in early childhood through the inability for children to learn how to regulate properly. Uh, and I think one of the most important roles that we have as parents is to really teach our kids how to regulate emotion. And the way that we teach kids how to regulate emotion uh, is through demonstration um, and actually providing a safe environment for them to regulate. You know, I think one of the things that we've, it's almost like this false misconception, and I had it as well, that we, when, when kids have meltdowns, you know, oftentimes we believe that if we were to go over there and give them a hug while they're having a meltdown, that we're actually reinforcing the behavior. But what now, you know, not only uh, child psychology, but also the study of, you know, pediatric neurology has shown us is that when a child is having, you know, in most cases a meltdown or they're having an emotional experience, that's actually when they need to feel the safest. Because when a child, you know, is expressing themselves emotionally, oftentimes they're experiencing high levels of pain. And when a child is experiencing high levels of pain, even if it's just, you know, they, they didn't get the toy or they didn't get what they want, they're having a complete meltdown. Rather than us taking the hard position of, well, no, and go to your room, now, we need to understand that when a child is in pain, whether it's physical pain or mental pain or emotional pain, you know, it really is our fundamental, it is a primary caregiver's fundamental responsibility to ensure that we show them how to regulate, regulate that pain, regulate that emotion in a healthy way. And the way that we do that is by holding the child uh, and remaining calm and remaining passive and just remaining you know, open and present to what the child's needs are. You know, and I know for me, and you know, I have a background in training dogs, uh, and, and, and one of the things that I've learned is the, 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 the importance of not reinforcing the wrong behaviours, because when you, give, uh, when you give affection to a dog when it's you know, displaying behaviours you don't want, um, you can sometimes increase the probability of those behaviours coming back again. But one of the things that I've now learned, dogs and children, although very similar, mammals, very similar when it comes to training, uh, there are fundamental differences. And one of the things that we need to understand with children is the way that their brain grows. In order to grow happy, healthy, you know, resilient and strong children, you know, we really need to let, teach them how to deal with discomfort. We need to teach them how to deal with pain, you know, physical, mental, emotional pain, but we need to do it by allowing them to feel safe when they're experiencing pain. You know, and it's our job to just be there for them. And I know, you know parenting is a selfless task as it is. And I know many parents, um, you know, can probably relate to you know, their own journey and their own experiences growing up you know, in their own families. And you know, for me, fundamentally, I, I feel, I've always thought I've had an incredible childhood, and I have. 
Uh, I did have an incredible childhood, but there's many things that I've now learned that have essentially affected me in a way that have you know, increased the probability of me experiencing certain things that I'm experiencing in my life right now. Uh, and that's not to say that even my parents did a bad job, they just did the best that they could with the knowledge and the skills that they have. And the beauty now is we live in an age where there's never been more information available to us uh, than there has been right now. And you know, for me, because there are so many things that we could talk about when it comes to how do you raise you know, healthy, resilient children, when it comes to you know, independent playtime and helping them build longer levels of focus and you know, understanding how to nurture and care. But the thing that I have found that is fundamental when it comes to strong neurological development is providing a safe and secure environment which is, it doesn't just mean you've got locks on the doors and food on the table, but it means that you are, you are there, you are present, uh, and you are, you know, you're there to nurture them when they're in pain. But most importantly, it's not just about hugging a child when it's in pain, but it's also about being present. Uh, and this is what they call, and I've just been reading a book um, um, called The Realms of Hungry Ghosts by um, uh, Gabor Matein. He, he talks about hardcore addiction. And one of the things that he talks about, you know, people who developed addiction are typically people that experienced some levels of pain during their childhood, different levels and along the spectrum, but they weren't given the tools to learn how to regulate it in a healthy way. And not only is it important for us to be there for a child when it's in pain to support them and to show them how to breathe by holding a child when it's in pain, you know, rather than feeling the pain and sobbing with the child, because all, all we're doing is reinforcing that pattern, is we hold the child and we become present, we become calm. But it's one thing to hold your child, but it's another thing to be present with the child. You know, keep the child in your mind and be sitting there and actually saying, it's okay, I know you're frustrated, it's okay. I know you didn't get what you want and you're upset, that's okay. It's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to be upset. And because it's when we actually teach our children that it's not okay to be upset, that they fundamentally think that there's something wrong and that their brains start to behave in different ways. So, you know, when a child is experiencing pain, it's okay, that's normal. You know, childhood, as Vanessa says, childhood is messy. And you know, it's our job as parents, you know, <laughs> to clean it up. And it's, that's the responsibility. And if you don't want that responsibility, don't have kids. And if you've already got kids, then, you know, it's your responsibility to ensure that you develop a healthy child. Because, you know, in many cases we can look at, you know, certain um, dysfunctions that we're seeing, you know, I guess in some ways at a political level, at some levels at a, at a country level, and we can start to understand a lot of the dysfunction that we are seeing right now is nothing more than a product of how people were brought up. And, you know, if we want to change the way that the world operates at a high level, we have to, we have to breed a, a new, you know, a new, a new type of children, a new type of child. And I don't mean genetically speaking, I just mean, you know, emotionally. How do we develop healthy, happy and emotionally stable children? You know, we teach them how to regulate. All right, next question comes from Louise Lacuna, and she says... Lacuna. 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 Wow, how do you know? Hey, Kerwin, I wanted to ask you, you say it takes 10 years to build a business while some are doing it quicker than that. Yeah. Is it psychology or dumb luck? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think it's a combination of two factors. I think it's a combination... Ah, oh, three factors. I'd say it's a combination of psychology because there's, there's a certain way of thinking that's required in order to build a business very quickly. Uh, the second one is planning, the ability to plan the, plan out the things that you need to do in order to get where it is that you want to go. Uh, and the third thing then is the prioritization. And I'll, I'll, I'll almost add one in there. You've got psychology, which is the ability to think in a very specific way. Uh, there is then your, your, your mission, like what is it you're actually trying to achieve, whether it be in two years or 10 years, you've got to have an outcome. You've got to have a big, hairy, audacious goal that you're looking for, that you're aiming at, that you're charging towards, because otherwise, how do you know if you've actually arrived in the first place? Then you need to have the plan, which is what are the things that need to be done. We reverse engineer the mission. 
Uh, and then we have a prioritization, which is what are the most important priorities? What are the things that need to be done first? You know, because on average, and I've said this before many times from stage, it takes on average to build a million dollar business from scratch seven to 10 years. Uh, four to 5% survive the first five years and less than 1.8% will actually survive from year one all the way through to year 10, uh, which is quite depressing when you think about it. You know, it's not exactly the stuff that fills people full of joy and happiness and oh wow, I'm definitely in the right path. But what we need to understand, there are people that do it quicker. I've built numerous businesses from scratch to millions and multi-millions of dollars, in many cases in less than 12 months and in less than two years. And the reason I've been able to do that is because, you know, I think if you add on to that, I have a very excessive uh, work ethic. I have a very strong work ethic, but I've also had the ability to, to, be able to, to be able to think very differently, think in a way that isn't based on limitations, it's based on possibility, uh, be able to deal with the failure as it comes up because it's gonna come up. Um, and really build a relationship, a conscious psychological relationship that is different uh, with failure, that is different from everyone else's. Because again, most people look at failure in business as something that's wrong and bad that makes them wrong or makes them you know, not good enough. And if you have that psychology, because you know, one of the things you'll experience in business is failure happens on a regular basis. And if you don't have a strong psychology, you know, that's the kind of stuff that can wear you down. That's the kind of stuff that can create you know, mental damage if you don't actually know how to reorganize the meanings in the moment as they happen to create a meaning that is more supportive than it is destructive. Uh, and then that ability to then look at where you're going, plan it out and then prioritize and then just execute, which fundamentally comes down to the work ethic. So yeah, it, it's not dumb luck. Like never, no one ever, and I've even had people say, oh, you know, I, I got very lucky. And you know, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, you can keep that luck shit in your pocket. You know, it has nothing to do with luck. Uh, timing can sometimes play a factor, which you could say is lucky. Um, but you know, I honestly don't believe that there's anything. There's a, there is such a thing as dumb luck. I think there is such a you know, there is such a thing as you know people being in the right place at the right time with the right skill set in order to apply the situation they're in. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you, you, there's no escaping the fact that you've got to work hard. But what's interesting, and I will say this, um, with many people that I've observed who become very successful in business, uh, a very high proportion of them weren't academically brilliant. And I actually think in some cases, not all, that academic intelligence can become a barrier because you know, sometimes academic intelligence, you know, it's book bound. It's bound by, uh, bound by facts uh, and cause and effect. Whereas in many ways, entrepreneurialism is it's quite quantum. You know, it's unpredictable. It's, there's multiple possibilities going at any one time. Uh, and sometimes we need to be able to tap into what feels right to produce the, that increases the probability of producing the result that we want. And if we're not open to that because we're book bound by process or book bound by what we need to be doing, you know, you don't always see, you know, what we need to in order to get what we want. So, yeah, it's definitely not dumb luck. Kate Robin. Hey, Corwin. Hey, Kate. How do I personally re reply to so many messages during the day and maintain being authentic but not have it consume all my day? Uh, that's a great question. Well, first of all, you need to start uh, scheduling your time. So, you know, schedule your time when you're going to respond to messages. Schedule your time when you're going to do community management. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, also start using canned responses. Now, I know the first thing you're going to say, well, hang on, how do I do it authentically? Well, let me ask you a question. Are there a series of responses that you create on a regular basis that are very authentic? And rather than having to reproduce that one every single time, you know, you can come up with a set of canned responses that literally can be cut and paste um, and be used in a very effective and efficient way that still maintains high levels of authenticity because it's your voice and it gives people what they want. The second thing that you can do, which is I've become a big fan of, uh, is I use a lot of voice to text. Uh, so when I'm doing my community management and you know I'm going through and answering people's questions or if I'm replying to people's comments, I'll literally just hit the mic button and I'll voice it out. 
Now it's not as pretty because there won't be a full stop, there won't be an exclamation mark, and you know, oftentimes there's not an emoji. And sometimes I will just respond with a, an emoji or a series of emojis. But for me, yeah, I use uh, canned responses, you know, for cut and paste situations. Uh, Still enables you to, it might be a little bit of a customization requirement required from time to time. But again, it's better to reply to 10 people with an authentic message that was, that was created authentically than it is to reply to maybe two um, authentically that takes you know, the amount of time that it would have required for you to reply to 10 if you just used canned responses. Uh, and voice to text. Um, <laughs> obviously, Siri is not perfect. Voice to text is not perfect. And whether it be on, the, on, on your, your phone, your device, or on your laptop, I do it for both. Um, but I think voice to text is getting a lot better and it certainly helps me be efficient and effective when it comes to punching out responses on community management. Give it a shot. Hey Daniel. How can you manage to be a leader in a business and still be liked and respected among your peers and colleagues? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I remember seeing that question come in and I remember thinking I need, we need to answer that question. I think the disconnect with that question is, I think the question you meant to ask is how do you be a boss and maintain being liked? Because being a boss and being a leader are two different things. A leader is naturally liked, and the reason that a leader is naturally liked is because people organically and naturally want to follow them. A boss is someone that demands respect, demands their authority, and you know uses command as a way to get people to what they do. And that oftentimes produces you know, a level of resentment or level of discord that can sometimes challenge personal relationships. You know, leadership is about understanding the importance of intimate personal relationships, especially in business, and learning how to understand your people in a way that enables you to communicate to them based on what style of communication is going to optimize not only the level of reception of that information, but also their ability to actually execute on what it is that you're giving them. Now, that doesn't remove, which is often very calm and assertive. How do you communicate in calm, assertive ways that maintain trust? Which kind of relates to what we're talking about earlier with the, the children. You know, one of the things that we need to understand is when you yell at a child, they, don't, they can't hear you because their emotional brain flips. They call it flipping the lid. Literally, the, front, the frontal cortex almost disconnects from the rest of the brain and they, and they can't hear what you're saying. And if you discipline, because imagine you yell at your child or you smack your child. Like, what are you teaching them first and foremost? But imagine if you applied that same psychology to a team member. If they did the wrong thing and you yell at them or you smack them, first of all, you'd be charged with assault. If not, you'd be charged with some form of, you know, bullying, uh, which is, you know, in some cases quite common. But what we've got to understand, you still need to learn how to take a tough position. But you can take a tough position, you can take a strong position without yelling, without screaming, without threatening someone. You can take a tough position by being calm, assertive, but very firm. You know, you can get, and you will get far, a far greater level of reception by remaining calm, assertive, and being firm than you will by yelling and screaming and threatening and demanding. And I think oftentimes, you know, we, mis we, we misunderstand what leadership really is. Leadership really is about being out in front. It is about getting people to follow you. Being a boss is about working from behind and getting people to do things for you. You know, I'm the first person to, to, to pick up things off the floor. I'm the first person to clean up. I just went and washed all the dishes. Uh, yesterday when we were, we were in a taxi on the way to the airport and there was this tiny little seat in the back in the boot of the car because that was the only taxi available and I could have got any one number of my smaller team members to sit in there but I sat in the boot. You know, this, and I can think of so many times where I, I've, I've literally, and again, um, Simon Sinek wrote the book Leaders Eat Last. You know, oftentimes we, we look at leaders as the one who go in if, when there's food on the table and they eat first so that they have everything that they need and then everyone gets the scraps. That's not what real leadership is about. Like real leadership is about you getting the scraps. Uh, because fundamentally we're trying to get people to trust us. 
because leadership is about trust. You know, parenting, it's all about how do we build trust? You don't build trust with a child. You don't build trust with your team by yelling at them. If anything, you create fear, okay? And fear creates stress. Stress creates cortisol, and cortisol disrupts the way that the brain works in so many fundamental ways. As a child, it affects the ways that the brain develops. And as an adult, it affects their ability to make good quality decisions. Because when an adult is stressed, now, they lose half their IQ. When they lose half their IQ, they're not going to make a good decision. And if they don't make a good decision, that makes, increases the probability dramatically that they're going to produce an outcome that is going to be bad or produce even more stressful stimulus and it's just going to become this symbiotic loop. So first of all, we need to understand leadership is not, not about how do I be a leader and not be liked? Because no, in my book, that just does not compute. You know, being a leader is about how do you be liked to such a level that they tr like, trust and respect you and will do what you ask without even thinking because they know you have your best interests in heart. You know, leadership to me is, is not about telling people what to do. Leadership to me is about inspiring people to do what they would do already naturally for you. And that's where you know, one of the skills in leadership that's important is actually getting people to work for you that have the talents that you're looking for or that can be trained to have the skills that you require but they've got the attitude that's receptive to you know, what I'd call a quality leadership style. Good question. All right, we'll finish with a quick quick one. Quick one? Oh, yep. that's what she said. Yep. Uh, last oh. question. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Are you uh, ready? Are you glad we edit this? I am glad we... We should probably... No, we shouldn't leave that in. Maybe we should. Amanda Moraitis. Hey, Corwin. Hey, what, Amanda. What mantra do you use, if you use one? I use lots of mantras. Um, some people call them a mantra. Some people call them affirmations. Some people call them incantations. Uh, some people call them commands. Some people call them suggestions. Uh, it doesn't matter what you call them, but what you need to understand is your, your brain operates uh, like a high-functioning bio-organic supercomputer. You know, every single si computer scientific exploration and discovery has been trying to replicate how the human brain works because the human brain has enormous processing power. It processes 16 trillion bits of information every one second. But the average bear is only consciously aware of 2,000 bits of that information. And what we need to understand is every single behavior that you demonstrate right now as an adult was at some point fundamentally wired into you through the use of suggestion and exposure. So you were exposed to certain things and you were told certain things. You were, you know, you were exposed to certain things and you were told what they meant. Uh, you were told certain things and you just assumed that they were correct. And you know, for me, one of the most commonly, the, my, my number one mantra, do you know what it is? This is simple, this is, this is fun. Well, that's one of them. This is simple, this is easy, this is fun. But I look to use mantras naturally. Again, and I go like, okay, what is, what is one thing that people ask you on a regular basis? Like almost they'll ask you, in most cases, 10 to 50 times a day, how are you? And so for me, my number one mantra is when people say, how are you? And I get to repeat this like 40, 50 times a day is, I'm unstoppable, thank you, how are you? And what's really interesting is when people say, how are you? And I say, I'm unstoppable, thank you, how are you? Two things happen. First of all, they always go, whoa, that's new. So first of all, because most people say, how are you? They're not even fucking listening. They're like, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's like this, this, this unconscious cultural, social, thing that we do, but when you actually say something that they don't expect, you break through, you cut through the noise. And I can't tell you how many people have gone, yeah, you're Mr. Unstoppable. I remember you, you're Mr. Unstoppable. And it becomes, you know, it's become almost like my catchphrase in a way. And in, in, in many cases, you know, that's, uh, uh, I'm holding that name to, to, to use it for, for a movie or for a book at some point. But, um, you know, how are you? Uh, I'm unstoppable. That's a, a perfect response or looking at creating a, um, a command or a mantra that you use in situations where people ask you a regular question. Uh, but for me, I remember this is going back in my mid-20s, about 25 or 26, I wrote out uh, a list. It was like 25 things 
25 skills, 25 outcomes that I was trying to develop. And I literally just wrote out a command for each one. You know, I'm a master of psychology. I'm a master of understanding the psychological process of transformation and change, not just myself, but also in others. I'm a master of persuasion. I'm a master of sales. I'm a master of leadership and personal transformation. Like I just came up with all these suggestions that if they were to come true, they would produce the behaviors that I would need in order to, as a natural consequence, be required to create what the life, what the life that I was looking for. Uh, and so everything I've got around me now, every single thing that I've created in my life, and I can say this hand on heart, I swear on my son's life, has been by design. And this doesn't happen for everyone, some people it just happens. But I literally sat down and I created all the mantras, all the suggestions, all the commands that I wanted, that if that command came true, it would naturally produce the behaviors that I was looking for. And you know, I literally, oh man, and I used to, I used to have it in my car, I used to have it in my bathroom, I used to have it beside my bed. And I remember when I used to drive along the car, uh, I'd be in the car and I'd be like going on my way to an appointment and I'd be fucking screaming my mantras out. You know, I am a, I am a master of And I'd be screaming so loud, spit would be coming out. And so many times, you know, I'd look beside me and people would be like freaking out, thinking I'm having a road rage incident. But all I was really trying to do was engage emotion and engage my physiology when I was, when I was using these commands to really embed them. Because it's one thing to sit there and recite a command, but if you're using your physiology, okay, it's gonna embed it in your physiology, it's gonna embed it at a cellular level. And if you're using high levels of emotion, you know, there's a thing, what's called a significant emotional event. We tend to remember the things that have emotions attached to them. You know? And when you can attach an emotion in some cases to you know, a suggestion, you're not only reinforcing it at a physical and a biological level, but you're really reinforcing it at at a psychological and a neurobiological level and within your reference systems and creating really strong connections within your neurology, really strong connections within your synapses that you, know, that you repeat over and over and over. And if you say to yourself, you're a master of persuasion, you know, a thousand times with lots of energy, you literally wire your brain to believe you're a master of persuasion. And as a result, you naturally either go towards and learn the things that make you a master of persuasion or you naturally just become very persuasive. It's quite powerful. It is really incredible what, can you, what you can do. So my life is by design uh, and yours can be too. You've just got to sit down and map it out. What do you need? Great question to finish on. Beautiful, beautiful. That's episode 17. That was episode 13 of the Hey Kerwin Show. I forgot to say hashtag. For those of you who have any questions, make sure you use the hashtag Hey Kerwin, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even smoke signals and sign language. We have even now just opened up a carrier pigeon station on the roof, so you can now actually send in your questions via carrier pigeon as well. The question of the day for those of you playing at home is, what would be an incredible mantra for you to suggest to yourself on a regular basis that if it were to come true, would naturally produce the behaviors that would naturally produce the consequences that you're looking for to get forward in your life. Let me know below. What is the mantra that you need to create today that will produce the life you want tomorrow? Hashtag Hey Kerwin, I love you guys, I'll see you soon.